Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you as it's still snowing. Dear Lord, I'm so ready for spring. Please just stop snowing here in the mountains of Utah. Just a small amount of housekeeping today. For any European listeners, I'll be attending PeerCon in Poznan, Poland, the weekend of June 16th. I've been to this convention before, and they are an absolute delight, so I look forward to seeing anyone who attends. I also finished up the Montego Kickstarter fulfillment last week. If you missed the Kickstarter, the novella will be out in hardcover, ebook, and audio at the end of May, and you can pre-order from the usual places right now. On with the show! My guest this week is author Michael Stackpole. Michael has a long and fantastic career highlighted, among many things, by his work on the Star Wars X-Wing books back in the 90s. He's written in both his own original worlds and for intellectual properties, including Star Wars, Battletech, and World of Warcraft. As a longtime gaming enthusiast and writer, he's worked on both tabletop RPGs and computer games. Michael is kind enough to let my inner teenager gush about Star Wars and chat about his process in creating the X-Wing books. We also discuss his works on the original Wasteland game and briefly touch on on its influence on the Fallout universe. We get into a long conversation on the history of the entertainment industry and the scale and longevity of a writer's fame. Enjoy my conversation with Michael Stackpole. I uh, I mentioned that I was having you on today and uh, my to my street team and and everyone was very delighted. There's like a like a, a level of, of nerdy guys, especially I think probably especially around my age in the mid 30s that, uh, you know, we kind of grew into reading uh, right around the time Star Wars novels were just massive. Sure. All every library in the system when I was a kid had all the Star Wars novels. It just, you know, I, I really love that. It 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 is amazing. And it, it's it, it surprises me. It shows when, again, guys in that same. Uh, age range you're talking about will come up and they'll have their kids with them and pretty much makes me feel ancient uh you know so uh uh but it is it is kind of it it's kind of weird it's also weird for me to see uh you know uh, young and talented writers like yourself you know having grown up reading this stuff only because because i remember when i was basically your age and and the people i grew up reading and then i got to meet them and it's like this is for me the, the 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 dissidence that you know I'm in that position that those guys were now. It's just you know you never expect that. That's not part of that's not part of what they warn you about. So thirty years from now, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> hey, you know what? If if people actually like remember me in thirty years, I'll be very pleased. I, I, well, that's probably true of all of us. Uh, 
you know, I, I mean, historically, I think Stephen King makes it out of makes out of all the writers writing today. Stephen King will be the one remembered. Yeah, the rest of them, no. <laughs> Right. It's it's funny because once in a while, uh, you know, just in conversation or in research or something, I come across the kind of the the sheer size of publishing back in the days of Arthur Conan Doyle and like these these authors that have stayed with us in our public consciousness. And you look at that and you realize that some of these authors that today are very household names they were just a drop in the bucket of the entertainment industry of that time. And there are other authors that sold way more books than them that nobody remembers. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the last couple of weeks, I've been doing some research back into that, you know, Conan Doyle and slightly afterward area for a project um, that I want to do. And you run across these writers that you had no idea existed. Uh they were bestsellers in their time. They were selling to all the best magazines. Uh, and now you read the stories and the stories are not necessarily that good. Or conversely, to your point, there were writers that you know, you've never heard of before and you grab a book that they did and it's brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant and relevant and, you know, still speaks to readers, even though this thing is 125 years old. It's just amazing. Yeah, it is. It is kind of funny to like look at because uh, we think of like, like I just said, the words entertainment industry. We think of entertainment industry as a modern thing, but it's so not, you know, like like publishing as as in, you know, like like putting out tons of stories and really, you know, gripping millions of readers around the world kind of stuff that's existed for a couple of centuries. It, it, it really has. There's, there's one author, um, Arthur Reeve, who did uh, uh, detective stories. His character, Craig Kennedy was hyped as the Sherlock Holmes, the American Sherlock Holmes, Craig Kennedy ground out, or excuse me, uh, Reeves ground out a Craig Kennedy story every month for Cosmopolitan magazine between 1911 and 1918. I just and 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 probably made bank doing it. Oh, absolutely. He made I I don't know how much money he made, but right before he died, there was an article in the New York Times about arson at his estate in New York that that someone tried to burn down his kennels. And in the process, 50 dogs got out. I mean, 50 dogs. <laughs> this place must have been huge, you know? Yeah. And and Reeve, literally, he, he sold some of the Kennedy stories late on to the detective pulps. But prior to that, it was Cosmopolitan, Smart Set, all of the top magazines we're buying these stories from it. Um, I mean, it was just, it was amazing. I mean, there's a lot of talk about these days about kind of the way the entertainment industry as a whole is spread in so many different directions. Cause you've got uh, movies, TV, uh, podcasts, you know, writing all this stuff that you can, you know, entertain yourself with. I mean, it used to be that it was just reading. Like if you wanted to, you know, get into a different world for, you know, the afternoon, that's what you did is you read. There, there wasn't other stuff to go look at. Well, and, and reading wasn't necessarily a solitary occupation. It was something that, you know, uh, I mean, if you read the Little House on the Prairie books, 
you know, the evenings that, that people would be darning socks and, and doing other things, and Dad would be reading from the newspapers to everybody in the parlor. I mean, that was entertainment. You know, it, you, it was a family affair. And you don't have that, you know, nowadays. Yeah, the idea of of being read aloud to from someone that's literally sitting in the room with me, that is a bizarre thought. Like, but but that used to be a thing. Like, you know, in factories, like the factory workers would get together and they would hire someone to come read the newspaper or the latest bestseller to them while they were working. Yeah, a- absolutely. And the the um, the demand for these things. I mean, the stories of people waiting on the docks in New York for the ships to be coming in from England, so they could find out what the next installment of the Charles Dickens serial was, you know, did little Nell live or not, uh, you know, and shouting this to people on the deck. I mean, you know, it's just, it, it, it you know, and we look at, you know, the, the Harry Potter phenomena as, as being, or many people did look at the Harry Potter phenomena as being, you know, unprecedented. And it's like not unprecedented at all, you know? And I think it was, you know, Poe, uh, you know, Poe would make more money reading his work at uh, assemblies than he ever made having it published. Yeah. So you know, th- it was a it was an entirely different. Uh, and, and there's another writer, uh, John Kendrick Bangs, who was a humorist, knew Mark Twain. He, he's somebody who's virtually unknown today. Um, but he wrote a memoir because in his last twenty years of life, he made his money by giving speeches. 200 nights a year and he would travel all over and he wonderful stories about about the traveling life and and how you had to do all of this stuff but i mean people in these towns lived for the fact that this guy from the east coast was going to be coming and speaking and and banks told a great story about he went to some town out west uh, may have even been in utah um but uh, he arrived on the train and he had a horrible toothache. So his host, he said, look, I've got a horrible toothache. I, I can't do anything. Can you, can we get to a dentist and just get this tooth out of my head? So the guy takes him to a dentist and the dentist says, look, Dennis is locking up. He says, I would love to help you out, but I can't. I'm late for an engagement this evening. There is a speaker in town and, and Bangs just said, I can assure you, you won't be late for that speech. And this was, this guy had read Bangs' work, loved him, and, you know, said, fine, you know, get in the chair, got the tooth out, and they went, <laughs> you know. And it was just, uh, but it was it was an entirely different uh, uh, nature of the entertainment industry, which was very, very personal uh and 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 a lot more obviously interactive yeah uh when you're when you're there with a live audience uh and you, and you get to see people well and that's an interesting thing you brought it up a couple times now this idea of of our personal entertainment being a uh a public thing where you go somewhere and you listen to a speaker or you are read a you know a section of a novel or or something like that where you are you're taking in something, but you're doing it with a lot of other people. Um, and that's almost like totally anathema to my kind of experience growing up 
of, you know, you, you get a book from the library and you sit alone at home and read it. And, you know, we, we never went to things, you know, occasionally my mom would, you know, make me go to like a lecture at the library or something. And I usually enjoyed that, but it was, it's always been a very, you know, private thing, this entertainment idea. Right. Um, and it's even getting worse, you know, as everybody's kind of sick of theaters now, you know, everybody's got great sound systems and these great TVs and, so it's even getting like smaller and smaller. Right. And I, you know, I think that I think in, in part, um, and, and it was a gradual, uh, a gradual thing, but in part reading becoming a solitary event was because of trains and mass transit. Um, I mean, in England, uh, WH, uh, white or WH Smith, excuse me, um, used to publish books in three parts. So they would take Sir Walter Raleigh's Ivanhoe and, and drop it into three volumes. And if you were going from London to, say, Manchester, you would rent volume one and you would read that and you would turn it in at the station when you get to Manchester. Uh, and then you would get volume two as you were coming back. Uh, and and this is this is what you would do to entertain yourself. And so, you know, slowly that sort of began to spread. They, and it, uh, they were really smart. Um, they published everything with this lurid yellow spine. So if you ever went to somebody's house and they had these books with these lurid yellow spines, you knew they stole them. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, so that would be your, and it, I thought it was very funny years later, uh, Don Wolheim with Daw published everything with a lurid yellow spine. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting back to that, getting back to that grand tradition of, of them being very, very visible. Um, but you're right. You know, now we have, we have all these home entertainment things and, uh, uh, systems and, you know, and, and obviously the pandemic, you know, really accelerated, um, uh, you know, that move away from, uh, cause you just don't want to be parts of crowds. Uh, so. Yeah. Well, and I, I think the last time that I did like a serious, like make it a community thing, um, and for, for any kind of entertainment was probably, probably doing Game of Thrones watch parties, um, because, you know, we had lots of my friends were interested. And so we would get together and we'd do drinks and snacks and stuff. And, uh, but I think that's probably the last time I really watched stuff with someone that wasn't my wife. Right. Right. I mean, you know, I, I volunteer and, and, uh, work with the Phoenix Film Festival and I, I've, for the last 18 years, I've done the science fiction programming every year. Um, that festival is in Phoenix, and it's at the end of March, beginning of April. Um, and so you do see people who are film enthusiasts, you know, strangers coming together to watch these things. But it's of necessity. They will never be able to see this stuff otherwise. Yeah. Um, you know, but but just for general entertainment, yeah, it's, it's a very... It's entirely different than than uh, than the way it used to be. <laughs> it's weird how that kind of changes and develops. And I'm sure that over the next thirty years, it's probably going to continue to change in some way or another. Yeah. Well, I mean, even even before COVID, we were seeing uh, the rise of dinner theaters, mm. where instead of you know having dinner around and taking in a movie, you would just eat there in the theater. You know, I mean, granted, the movie the the food was not necessarily uh, of the quality you might get when you actually chose your restaurant, but uh, but, you know, it, it was OK. Yeah. Yeah. And and honestly, that, that kind of thing, like if that experience was available to me, I'd probably try it out. You know, something that's like a, a cool date night. You know, give me a give me a favorite film, you know, even old older films, you know, give me something really cool for a date night and a and a, something fun, even if it's overpriced, you know. 
uh, give me a cool meal and some service, and that would be great. Well, and I think that's the other thing. Um, it's all about the experience. And one of the things that you and I are really lucky about is that um, we get to turn out these stories, which give other people these new experiences. Um, you know, when when somebody is tucked into one of our stories, um, you know, they're, they're not in this world anymore. I mean, it, for me, one of the one of the biggest compliments I get is, you know, someone will say it's happened in, you know, people will be in New York and they'll go, you know, I, I got your latest book. I missed my stop, <laughs> you know, I mean, or, or, you know, somebody else says, hey, I had to fly across country. Thank you for, you know, making that five hour flight. You know, I didn't even notice it go by. Yeah. And those are uh, those are really cool things. And it's it's I think it was Stephen King that said uh, books are the only practical application of telepathy. Uh, you know, where it's, where it's, you know, our thoughts straight into their brains. Uh, and, and even though you and I know that they're not seeing it exactly the way that we saw it, the fact that they're seeing even 50% of it, the way that we saw it is, is a truly amazing thing. And, and it's still the closest thing I would imagine that we have to, uh, someone literally sitting by you and telling you a story. You know, because because movies and film and uh, and TV and and these big mediums, by necessity, they're these massive productions that have hundreds, maybe thousands of people's creative work kind of poured into it. But you know, like the the books we write, it's yeah. There's a little bit of help from editors and you know agents, whoever kind of gets their fingers in it a bit. But it's it's still reasonably close to you know, sitting there and telling a story with somebody. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, our, our, um, well, literally reading the stuff from the turn of the previous century, uh, you know, from, from around world war one and stuff like that. A lot of those, you had the, the narrator voice very close to being the one that tells you the story. I mean, obviously whenever you've got, um, the great detective style thing where you've got a raconteur, and then you've got the you've got the other character. Um, you literally have someone telling you the story. Um, you know when we're when we're doing it only third person because narrator interjection is 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 greatly frowned upon, and I think with good reason. Uh, you know I'm, I'm not not lamenting that. Uh, I have never in my career wanted to write. And dear gentle reader, if you will remember, uh, you know at the beginning of a chapter, um, yeah. you know, like Gary Gygax, um, the. Uh, uh, you know, it's a little bit more. It's a little bit more difficult because we're keeping the char- We're keeping the reader and the characters like a half a step off. But I think that's also in response to so much storytelling and the way that stories are told comes through movies and TV, where you are a half a step off. Yeah. You know, just by the necessity of the medium. So a lot of people are learning to absorb story um, that way, and and we just sort of have to accommodate them. To make it familiar enough for them to feel at ease. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's interesting to think about how these things are. They affect you know, regular people because entertainment, just in general, you know, we've said entertainment industry several times, but entertainment in general is such a huge part of like literally everyone's lives. Like the most straight laced kind of. Uh, I don't know, head down business person that never picks up a book, they still have their favorite TV show. You know, they still watch Law and Order. Like, sure. there's, it's just such an integral part of society. Um, and I don't know, it is kind of fun being a little bit 
you know, on the ground level of that. Well, and I think the other thing you have to look at is, is again, even a hundred years ago, uh, most people were on a farm or working in a factory. They were working. I mean, if you're on a farm, you're working every day out of the week. Um, you know, if you're in a factory, you're probably working six days out of the week. Uh, you're working long hours. Um, you're at the, you're really at the whim of, uh, whether the sun is up or down. Um, you know, which is, again, is a thing that, you know, we never think about, you know, the luxury some people today have of being a night owl and, and being able to work all night, just absolutely incredible, you know, or the fact that, uh, uh, you know, right when we were starting this, I had to remember to turn my phone off so I wouldn't get interrupted by stuff. (laughs) Um, you know, again, this is a concept that, that, uh, that, that no one back in those times would have even come close to. Um, so the fact is, is that even though we all see ourselves as working incredibly, incredibly hard, the fact is we have more leisure time now than, than again, our grandparents or great grandparents ever dreamed of having. And that's, and that's why, you know, going to listen to, uh, John Bangs was so important to them because this was a rare, rare experience that came around, you know, and, and the whole community had chipped in. They'd paid for it with tickets. You know, this was this was a big event that they were going to be talking about for the next two weeks. Yeah. Well, it's like how we would think of, you know, maybe like maybe the bigger um, sort of uh, I don't know what you'd call them uh, in-person entertainers, people like stand up comedians, uh, uh, musicians that still do that kind of thing today. Um, you know, it's very similar to that, except it was also, you know, lecturers and authors and and all sorts of these other kind of professions that nowadays we don't think of as huge in-person entertainment. You know, maybe, maybe coastal cities, you know, maybe like, you know, you get LA, San Francisco are probably going to have more of that kind of thing, you know, big universities that can, that have auditoriums and stuff, but certainly not like small towns and stuff like that. No, no, no. Again, you're just not seeing that unless, you know, the library puts together a thing. I mean, I I know I was talking to uh, John Jackson Miller, And, um, in Illinois, uh, one of the particular libraries has a science fiction weekend and they deliberately go and drag from that area. But, you know, that's like the biggest thing that they do. And, and, and it it is very weird. I mean, because we go to conventions and, and we see lectures, we have lectures, we give lectures, you know, we're more used to that sort of thing. But I remember back in uh, 1998, uh, the Phoenix Public Library was having their 100th anniversary. And so uh, I was one of the two people that they approached to organize a science fiction weekend. Um, and it was kind of funny. They, uh, you know, they had a list of authors that they wanted to see if they could get. And and they handed me the list and they go, you know, can you get these people? And I'm, I'm what I'm thinking is half of these people are on speed dial, you know, back <laughs> in the days when we had speed dial, um, you know, so, yeah. uh, and, you know, and we were able to put it together and, but for the, for the general public, you know, this was a new and novel thing to be able to hear from authors and hear these discussions. Um, you know, they're just not, they're not aware of it. And, and whereas, you know, a century ago, this would have been absolutely prime stuff. Yeah. Or, or, or again, I remember when we started with the film festival, um, one of the staples of film festivals is that you have filmmakers who come to view their films and then afterwards will answer questions about their films. And the first 
couple of years because it was the Horror and Science Fiction Film Festival. Uh, it, it was a standalone that, that since has been folded in to the Phoenix Film Festival. We literally had to, at the beginning of films, say, by the way, folks, filmmakers will be here. You have to stay because then yeah. you can ask them questions. Because the people who are watching horror movies and science fiction movies they were not used to that. They were not film festival people. We literally had to educate them into that. So it was just something that, you know, something that's been lost, uh, you know, and, and, and it was, and it just added to the experience. Right. Well, and you, you've had um, a lot more of the, uh, the convention experience than I have, but from, you know, my, you know, we've done booths together, like from, from doing those booths, like, it's so funny because you stand there with your books and, and people walk by and they'll like look at you kind of funny, like you're the person behind the register right. and they'll go, is the author here? And you're like, yeah, that's me. Yeah. Like they're just not used to having the person that wrote the book being anywhere nearby. Oh no. Cause, cause you know, all authors live in New York. <laughs> I didn't know if you knew that, uh, Brian, but, but apparently you live in New York. Yes. Uh, so, you know, that's, just, that is just the, the realism of, because face it, every writer they see is on a TV show and lives in New York. Or every yep. movie, you know, they're at, when was the last time your editor took you on a leisurely walk eating ice cream through Central Park? <laughs> um, you know, it's been it's been been a while for me. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's kind of a funny thing. Yeah, like all, all authors live in New York. All screenwriters live in L.A. Yep. yep. Um, you know, you get that. You get those kind of like just vague assumptions that people get from, you know, their entertainment. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. I know you the best from your Star Wars books. Mm -hmm. And um, and I I genuinely like I, I I look back on <laughs> I look back on like kind of the mid 90s um, when I was really getting into reading was between probably about 95, 96 and about 2001 or so is when like my height of picking up chapter books. And, um, and man, like it's funny because the, you know, like, like as an author, you kind of get these ideas of you've got kind of the people that do work for hire kind of stuff. Um, and then you've got the people that do your kind of original worlds, I guess you'd say. Sure. And I don't know, there's, <laughs> I want to not put my foot in my mouth here um, in any way, but like, I always think of you as kind of, I think of you in the latter because you are so connected in my psyche to the star Wars books, even though that was, I'm, I know as an author that was work for hire, like those X wings books, like that's you. Oh yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. so, it's so like, I don't know. I, I'm what I'm trying to say is that that was a huge influence 
on my kind of young readership. And and thank you for that. Like X-Wing and iJedi, I think iJedi to, to this day is still one of my favorite Star Wars books ever. Well, it's so dang good. Thank you. I, I um, back in the day, um, you know, when, when we were doing tie-in stuff, and by we, I mean a lot of different authors, um, there, there were, it was very clear to me that there were two trajectories that were connected to uh, tie-in writing. And either you were an author that had done your own stuff and it hadn't taken off and you did tie-in books and you never climbed back out again. I mean, you just never did. Um, Or the trajectory was, uh, you know, it's like learning. You do tie-in books because it's like learning to swim in the shallow end of the pool. Uh, And then, you know, when they give you a chance, you can go off the deep end. Yeah. as it was for me when I got to the X-wing books, um, I'd already done I'd already done a ton of BattleTech stuff and a bunch of other tie-in work, and I had the contract with Bantam, and I turned out a book called Once a Hero, which is to date one of the best books I've ever done. So you know, so I'd already seen that trajectory coming out, but then they offer you Star Wars, and it's like, and I remember I was uh, I was on a family fishing trip with my dad, and we were driving back from Maine, and um, uh, and he just said, he said, what does this do for your career? And it's like, you know, this basically makes it, yeah. you know, I mean, this is, you know, you know, you're going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, holy crap. You know, that's, you know, that's like, that's like, you know, you, you've been playing catch out in the backyard and, and suddenly you're called up to the World Series. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's, it's, I mean, that's just an amazing thing. But the other thing which I realized is that the guys who go in and do tie-in work and never come back out go into tie-in work and they resent the fact that they're doing tie-in work. They're not getting as big a percentage and um, not as big a royalty. And, um, and so they don't do a good job. They don't give it their all. Yeah. Uh, and what I had learned from doing Battletech stuff, especially is that you have got to prove to the readers out there that, you know, the property as well as they do, you love it as much as they do. And you have to blow their minds. Uh, and you know, when it came to star Wars, absolutely. You know, I love star Wars always have, I thought I knew it pretty well. I learned to know it really a lot better and I really wanted to blow people's minds. And back in those early days, I remember, you know, uh, Kathy Tyres's book was out. Dave Farland's book was out. Tim's books were out and I read all of those and I said, okay, you know, Tim is the guy, Tim's the guy that I got to beat. And I'm never going to beat Tim. You know, I mean, he was here first. He set the tone. That's fine. But damn, I am going to give him yeah. a run for his money. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and one of the things it, uh, one of the things that I asked, and I asked it in a way that I knew what the uh, sort of forced the answer is, I said, now I can't use any of the main characters without special permission. Right. And, and Lucasfilm said, uh, yes, yes, that's right. You can't. And that was all I wanted. Because then if I didn't have to worry about people bitching about my characterization of Luke or Leah or Han, I could do pretty much anything I wanted to. Yeah. And, and they were, Lucasfilm was great. I mean, they, they really in that era, and they may still, I don't know, but um, in that era, you know, if, if you were a creator and you were enthusiastic about doing something, if George did not say no, you know, they said, you know, God bless you, go. Huh. Um, and that was, uh, and, and, and that was, that was it, you know, so. Do you remember whether the original 
pitch of a kind of dog fighting adventure. Was that from you or was that from Lucasfilm? Oh no, they, they so so here what happened was this. Um they had a 12 book contract with Lucasfilm and they saw how well they were doing and they wanted to do more and Lucasfilm would not give them another 12 book contract. So they decided that they wanted to uh they wanted to take another license and they decided to take a license for the X-Wing computer game. Well, uh, I think it was Betsy Mitchell called me up and because uh, I had done computer games. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, uh, hey, we're thinking about taking a license on a game. You know, what do you think? And and I had this phone conversation where I was pretty blunt and said, yeah, you know, guys who are doing that sort of gaming right now, not big readers. You know, I mean, that was my experience. Even after doing Wasteland and Bard's Tale 3 and, and the Star Trek stuff. Uh, you know, yeah, not a big, not a big crossover and anything like that. You know, it's like, look, you know, I, I don't think you want to spend the money on this sort of license. I don't think it's going to, going to work. Um, and she said, oh, darn. Cause, cause we were thinking about buying the X-Wing, uh, the X-Wing license. Yeah. And I said, Star Wars, oh, buy it, <laughs> you know? And, and so that was it, right? You know, I just got this phone call about that. And then I get four weeks later, my, uh, my agent calls up on uh valentine's day and at six o'clock in the morning in arizona because it's you know nine in the morning in, in new york right yeah uh calls up and uh and it's my agent and she says bantam just offered you four star wars books i said yes <laughs> and so when my editor called a little bit later that day uh you know the the literally what i was given my assignment was uh that first day we want military science fiction in the Star Wars universe. Mm-hmm. That was it. I mean, those those were all the parameters I had. And um, then another phone call about three weeks later uh, was Sue Rastoni and, and Kevin Anderson, actually. And they both said, oh, by the way, you're probably going to want to include Wedge, uh, yeah. you know, because we get some indication Wedge is kind of popular. Uh, yeah. We had no idea how popular Wedge was. Wedge's popularity was an artifact of VHS tapes because... Up until that point, you'd see Wedge as a bit character, right? And there would be three years off, and you'd see him again in three years off. Well, once they were on video, you were watching them back to back to back. Wedge became a major character. And like I say... Yeah, he's, he's, he's one of the few fighters that, like, makes it through the whole trilogy. He's pretty much the only one. Right? Like, yeah, he might be the only side character that, like, you know, that you see in those side shots and, and all the dark fighting yep. stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he pretty much is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and I think the other ones I ended up giving names to just because, you know, there were so few of them. You know, you had yeah. to, you had to do something with it for the comics and, 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 uh, those things. So, uh, so that was it. And the only other thing which I knew when I, I, uh, cause I had read Tim's books, I knew that, uh, the new Republic owned the Imperial homeworld. So I asked if I could set the X-Wing books in the campaign to take the Imperial homeworld. Yeah. And, and they had another book that was going to be set during that time, but that deal fell through. So, you know, basically, uh, I did Rogue Squadron. Then they started playing around with Shadows of the Empire. So I picked up pieces of that and threw them into Wedge's Gamble and then the other two. And we always knew that was the other thing that was funny. So I get the offer. Um, I'm at a convention in Louisiana or in Mississippi um, called CoastCon. Tom Dupree, who was my Bantam editor, was also there. 
we are at the Meet the Pros thing, and Tom announces that I've been given four Star Wars books. Okay. I mean, nobody knew this. I mean, one, there was yeah. no internet at the time. Nobody knew this. So Tom makes this announcement right at, you know, to, to the, you know, 100 people that were in the room. And everybody kept coming up to me at that convention going, Hey, it's so great you got a trilogy. It's so great you got a trilogy. And I and I would go, go but no, I got four books, but nobody would hear me, right? And yeah. and you know, and I, I went home and I'm going, okay, so everybody thinks I've got a trilogy. Therefore, I'm going to plot this set as three books plus one. Uh-huh. Uh, because I know that at the end of the trilogy, if I throw in where everybody's getting medals and stuff like that, everybody's gonna think the books are done. And then I kick us into the fourth book. Holy crap, that's going to make people go crazy. And it made yeah. people go crazy. So it was wonderful. Right. Yeah, yeah. As, I mean, I, I, like, as someone who, you know, because was was a kid during that time, I, you know, I'm not privy to how the publishing world was or anything like that. But I definitely had uh, a sense that the Star Wars books were just insanely popular. Like I said before, like every branch of the library in the system that I had around my house uh, they all had their own sets of the Star Wars books. They're just the whole bookshelves full of these things. And I, I, I do get the sense that that was just that was the, the like fiction of the 90s, like the adventure science fiction stuff. And uh, and that must have been really cool to be kind of part of that. Oh, I mean, it was. I mean, it was it was so great. Again, because it was pretty early on in the program, they let me do things. I would not have let me do, you know, and this is, this is how much they trusted us. For example, in all of my manuscripts, the manuscripts would be footnoted and they'd either be footnoted with a note that said, this is where I got this, you know, out of this piece of fiction, or the footnote would be, Hey, I invented this. What I need it for is this. If you're not going to give me the whole thing, at least give me this. And across the board, they said, okay, so they were great, but you take, for example, the errant venture. It is insanity to give a disreputable civilian imperial ordinance. But we did, and we did because Tim was going to be using it 15 years or 10 years in the future. And that was in a footnote. And Tom Dupree called me up and said, uh, you gave this to Booster because uh, Tim's going to use it? Yep. Okay. And and there you have it for you know for ten years there's a floating casino out there built into an imperial star destroyer yeah and that was just so much fun and actually I guess uh, Adam Christopher mentioned the errant venture in his book so now it's part of canon uh, so. <laughs> do you um do you uh, kind of keep your head into where Star Wars and the expanding you know current universe is and all that stuff or is that something you kind of keep at a kind of arm's length um I. When I do hear about it, it's because I'm talking to some of the authors who are working in there and just and and really only getting, you know, bare minimums of stuff. I, I know nothing that that anybody else, uh, you know, doesn't know. I don't um, I don't read it uh, mainly because um, it is work. I would be approaching it as as research, not as as enjoyable leisure time. And 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 I, I don't want to. I don't want to put that pressure on somebody else's book, you know, that you're going into it looking on how do I pull this apart? You know, I just want to, yeah. I would want to go in and, and just enjoy it, you know, so, so I haven't, but you know, if there's ever a point that um, Del Rey or Lucasfilm or, or Disney decides that, you know, they want me to do something, you know, and they send me a box of books, you know, I'll, I'll, 
I'll burn through those. I'll be happy to get right back in. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I, I, I was kind of wondering, and I, and I, I hope this isn't like, you know, this kind of ties back to what we were talking about a little before, but um, I, I hope this isn't taken in the wrong spirit, but I'm kind of curious wh- how you feel as someone uh, who is known for uh, doing work for hire for uh, at least, you know, from my perspective and from a lot, I think a lot of your know, kind of people my age, you're known because of the Star Wars books and the Battle Tel- Attack books. Do you, is that a complicated feeling to you or are you just quite proud of that? No, I, I certainly incredibly proud. Look, you know, I mean, I was lucky enough to be given those assignments and I know that those books have made countless people happy down through the years. I mean, I, I literally, I, I have had letters from kids who say, you know, they didn't like reading before they read, you know, Rogue Squadron uh, and that stuff. You know, so so thank you for the gift of, of reading. It's nothing I did. You know, I was just lucky enough to be their portal book. You know, I was the thing that that drew them in. Um, and I and I consider that an absolutely an absolutely wonderful thing. The fact that there are people out there that have named you know their their pets or their children. Oh my God, there are people who named children after my characters. Um, you know that's just that's that is it allows me to see how much those books meant to people, and and that is just you know you know this. There are not words to describe. You know, that's not what you expect. Oh, my God, I'm going to be writing this book and someone's going to name a kid after me, you know, after my main character. No, <laughs> no. You know, I mean, you might think, you know, at a convention, you'll be in line for getting coffee and someone will buy it for you as a thank you. And that and that's happened. It's absolutely lovely. Yeah. Uh, but not expected. Uh, so, but just the fact that you can make somebody happy, you can, you can, you know, give them a thrill. And, you know, you mentioned I Jedi earlier and interesting thing about I Jedi, and I've heard this from a number of people is that it has become their go-to feel good book. You know, it's, it's their safe haven, you know, and, and, uh, and, and that too is very, very special. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Well, and it's very fun. And I, I, I do remember, I, it's been a very long time since I've you know, was a huge Star Wars reader. I think I I think I stopped right around maybe 2004 2005. Um, I just got away from it. And but I do remember that most of the Star Wars books were part of bigger series. So you kind of you were you were getting the big big shebang. And and I have a very distinct memory of both um, Courtship of Princess Leia. And I Jedi being standalone adventures that I, for some reason, those stuck with me, maybe a little bit more than the big series did. Sure, sure. Yeah, I Jedi was kind of weird because it was a first person story. Um, and and what I really wanted and I was, I was happy to let me do um, was allow you to see the world from a, a Jedi's eyes as they were learning because we really hadn't had that uh, up, up to that point. Um, and that was a lot of fun for me to write. Oh, it was, it was very delightful for me to read. Okay. (laughs) I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You mentioned once uh, your work on um, on video games. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I kind of wanted to circle back around to that because I genuinely had no idea that you co-designed the first Wasteland. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and for the listener, um, and, and you can correct me if I've got any of these facts wrong, uh, but for the listener, Wasteland was basically early fallout. Um, yeah. And I think what happened was that the company owned Wasteland and then ended up making fallout later based on all of that development. Um. It, it, there was a uh, interplay got uh, interplay got bought, and then the guys who were at interplay, I guess, ended up being the ones doing Fallout and developing it and going forward. So, yeah, so so Fallout is a child of Wasteland. So, yeah. so you're directly directly responsible for kind of the for the Fallout universe, which is and, and yeah, pretty much. I, I wish they send me a check, but yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, that's, that is how these things work, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, I guess. I mean, Wasteland was one of those cool things that because I had never done a project like that before and Alan Pavlish had never done a project like that before, we didn't realize that there were limitations. And so, uh, you know, I'd be working with, with the designers on my end of building things and we're sort of building the system as we went. And one of them, Ken San Andre, the, the creator of Tunnels and Trolls, uh, fairly often would call up and say, I want to do this, and Alan won't let me do it. And I'd call Alan up and I'd say, hey, hey, Alan, can we possibly do something this way? And Alan would say, no, we really can't. And, and so, But Alan and I would continue the discussion, and would you find another way to get that same effect? And so what ended up happening was the system got built around the needs of the designers and then refined to become sort of this really easy way for players to be uh, be doing stuff and then you know we were just left to be kind of weird and wacky and and uh you know do 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 things we knew would provoke reactions within the uh, uh within the player base yeah well and you did writing on uh, wasteland 2 right uh i did i did some early development on wasteland 2 uh and um i did uh did bard's tale 3 uh, did some work on the two Star Trek games that Interplay did. I also did some work on a, uh, a, a Mech Warrior game for Microsoft, which ultimately ended up being shelved. But they did pay, yeah. so I was, that was okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. I, that, I mean, that is the benefit of work for hire is that if the thing never comes out, you still get paid. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, and, and you know, I mean, the key thing about work for hire is, is that you may not be getting as high a percentage, a high a royalty as you were, but you've got a built-in audience. And and one of the things, and this I advise to a lot of different authors when they're when they're looking at these things. Whenever I look at a project, especially a 
uh, tie-in project. One of the questions I ask is, is this going to give me a new audience that I don't already have? And if the answer to that is yes, you know, then that's very much in its favor. And the second thing you have to ask is, does will the audience I already have, will they enjoy this? And, and you know, if you get a plus there, you know, I mean, that's that's great. So provided the money's okay and the property's cool and, and you don't get micromanaged, <laughs> you know, then, then absolutely go ahead with the project. Because again, that's going to be a bigger audience than, than you're currently selling. To. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me what you've been working on the last few years. Uh, let's see. Last couple of years, um, I've been doing the sequel to Italian Revenant. I've been doing that through my Patreon project. And so that was a couple chapters a month for the last four years. And finally, the thing is done. But it's way too big, so I'm probably going to have to split it in half. You know, so so we'll just have to wait and see how that goes. I'm in the yeah. letting it cool off phase. Uh, and then uh, I did a... Uh, I did a Dark Souls novel, um, which finally came out in November. And that was, that was, um, you know, I never would have written a fantasy novel with that feel just because that's not, it's not my, not really my vibe that I, I easily get into. Yeah. But, you know, once, you know, once you're taking the king's coin to, to get in there, it's like, okay, let's dive in. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. So, so yes, the water is dark and murky. But it's kind of warm. It's okay, you know, and uh, and figuring out ways to translate the feeling, the very strong feelings and and impressions of Dark Souls, and translating it into a narrative format. You know, that was uh, that was a kind of challenge that I really really liked. And then uh, the other novel that I did in that time, last several years, was uh, a Gears of War novel. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So and that was uh, that was a lot of fun because they. Um, the one I loved uh, uh, working with the coalition and because uh, they were just great. What they entrusted me to do in, in the games uh, between game three and game four, there's a 25 year gap where society has begun to rebuild itself. And what they wanted me to do is to take those first six months after the end of three, after the after the victory and just start the rebuilding. And so and so they entrusted me with their, you know, with their key characters and said, you know, basically make them whole, give them a life and, and, you know, get us to where we're going to be in 25 years. And that yeah. was, and that, and it's, it's, it's really cool when, when, you know, somebody's got this, you know, multi-million dollar property says, oh yeah, by the way, you go ahead and do this. Uh, so it, it sounds like you take a genuine pleasure in playing in other people's sound sandboxes. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's again, because you know, you've got an audience which is there to be entertained. Um, you know, it's not like when we do, when we're doing our own stuff, you know, you know, you're shouting out into the empty darkness. You have no <laughs> idea if anybody's going to like it. You hope, but no clue. Whereas here, you already know that. And, and you can look at, um, you can look at the games, you can look at the things and, and see what it is that you know that the, the fans really, really like. And the things that get them going, um, and you can hit those marks. You know, you can find different ways to get there, uh, and so it's going to be a thrill to them. And and so I really, uh, you know, in all of our stuff, we're always playing with our readers' perceptions. In in uh, tie-in work, it's just that much easier because uh, <laughs> the preconceptions are kind of writ large, as opposed to when we're doing our own stuff. You know, 
we have to set those pre preconditions or you know we have to set them up and then deliver the you know deliver the kibosh <laughs> and sometimes you're never sure if they're gonna twig onto it while you're doing the setup whereas yeah. you know when when it you know they've, they've spent 47 hours inside a game world uh you know then you can uh, you pretty much know you've got them and then you just uh deliver and and uh, make them scream oh yeah that's, that's delightful i really like that i really like that kind of outlook on that i i i've i've only been offered work for hire a couple of times and and i've you know my my career is still quite young sure. I, i've been going for around 10 years or so and uh and my my agent every time has said look your powder mage books are doing great you're let focus on your own stuff and so I've never actually done it, um, but I, I always worry that it, I'll get into something like that and and like ego will take over and I'll be like, oh, these idiots, they're up top, they're yelling at me and I they don't know what they're talking about, even though I'd probably be wrong. And and it, it genuinely sounds like you don't you don't seem to have that problem at all. Well, you know, a lot of things get solved. And, and this the, you know, one of the third factors that you look at um, in in this is just how easy are they to work with um i've been extremely lucky in that I, i've not had a client that wanted to micromanage um and you know with with the battletech stuff you know i'm basically part of the development team so you know so in setting up the stories uh you know i'm the one setting them up so you know i kind of can pick and choose what i want to do um which is which is cool and, and and i will say with battletech one of the things i'm really enjoying now is um, as we're bringing more writers in and they're bringing in a bunch of writers that I know and have said, look, you really need to need to talk to these guys. You know, I'm getting to to, to import a, a new generation of people. But um, in the process of agreeing on an outline and negotiating it out, this is where a lot of those things get resolved, which means there's very little that you have to fix after the first draft. Um, and even with the Gears of War novel, you know, we had one issue that their vision of the world was just slightly out of sync with the way that I was seeing it. And after the first draft, we were able to go, okay, I was able to go, okay, I get what you guys are doing. You do realize here are the issues. If that's what you're going with, here are the issues. Here are ways we can soft soap it so we don't we don't have to acknowledge those issues, just so you know they're there. And and <laughs> what I'll do on my end is I'll do this. You know, and so it was and and like I say, they were great in saying, "Yep, got it. We can see what's going on." And and uh, um, and and so we made it work. Well, that's that's excellent. I'm glad to hear that. I um, well, I, I I've kept you quite a long time, but I, I like to uh, end every episode. Um, I like to ask everybody the same left field question. Um, what is the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? The last thing that I ate that blew my mind. Holy mackerel! Ah. Uh... <laughs> Are you, are you much of a foodie? Um, yeah, I am. Um, and uh, but you know, since uh, since COVID, you know, I've, I've done a lot more cooking than than I have, you know, necessarily going out. Yeah. Um, and and the places that I go out tend to be ones where I know I'm going to get, you know, uh, great stuff. And um, and the problem is that I'm I'm of an age where I can't remember what I ate this morning. <laughs> um, so. So, so trying to remember, and and the thing of it is, is I know that there was a really good. There was something I had um for uh for lunch today. I met up with uh, Dan Wells, who's an author. I think you've met Dan a few times, at least. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I know Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I met up with Dan for lunch today, and we went to a uh, to a Peruvian place, which I've never been to. I've never had Peruvian before, and um, 
this place, the dish that Dan recommended I order, it's, it was just like a big plate of, uh, it called it stir fry, but it was basically uh, poutine, like, you know, fries and gravy with onions and, and beef on it. Right, right. And, and, it was, and, and, and white rice all mixed together. And it was really dang good. It was absolutely, totally out of my like normal wheelhouse, but I really enjoyed it. You know, oddly enough, I mean, the thing which blew my mind most recently, and this is as far back as I can remember, um, uh, was um, I'd gone to an Asian uh, food store and, you know, uh, Noor has uh, soup packets and stuff. Yeah. No, yeah, it's like like Lipton, but, but Noor is the other big competitor. Well, in the Asian food store, they have a couple of flavors that we don't have in, in you know, regular grocery stores. Yeah. And, and um, the soup mix is tamarind. It's a, it's a Thai tamarind soup. And um, I got that and I used it. Um, I tend to eat a lot of soup. I mean, it's cold weather and stuff like that. And I just used that as a soup base, tossed in some beef, tossed in a bunch of, you know, chopped up cabbage and, and things like that. And it just made this, a little bit of hot sauce, and it made this stunningly great sort of sweet, sour, uh, citrusy stew kind of thing that was, it was like, great, I'm eating this for the rest of the week. So I will never be able to recreate that, mind you, but but it was brilliant. Oh, that sounds delightful. I like that a lot. Very cool. Yeah, tamarind's not one of those ones we get we like run across a ton, yeah. you know, but, uh, but every time I do, I, I usually enjoy it. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, you can, um, I mean, I've gotten, uh, I, I, I like tamarind now. And so I'll, I'll get that soup mix or you can get a puree or, or different things and, and use that. Yeah. I, I love figuring out kind of those bases yeah, yeah. that you add stuff to and you, you know, you cook with meat or rice or whatever. And oh, I, I, I do love finding something good that I like to add to. Yep. Yep. So it's always delightful. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, most of the stuff that I eat out nowadays, I tend to eat at restaurants that I know pretty well. Uh, you know, in one case, I mean, I, uh, I know the owner of a particular restaurant really well, uh, you know, and, and the food is great. So I like going there. And if he's there, you know, there we end up drinking and it's great. And so it's just, you know, it's a fun thing. Um, there is a place in your town. Um, I think it's in Scottsdale uh, or nearby that I've been to a few times that um, uh, it's a uh, fried chicken and waffle place. Okay. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it Lola? I think it is Lola's. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I, I've, I've been a couple of times, you know, when I'm, when I've been in town for Phoenix comic con and I, I fried chicken and waffles is like one of my sweet spots. It's so good. Are you coming in for comic con this year? No, no, not this year. But next time, next time I'm in town. Oh man. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take you to my friend's restaurant. I, I would love to. That'd be fantastic. That was science fiction and fantasy author, Michael Stackpole. You can find links to Michael's social media down in the show notes. You can find me as always at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gulickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Halon, Brian, Will Lebelski, Bradley Thornhill, 
and Roberto Fontata for their backing on Patreon.